Good morning, TPNers, and welcome to another episode of the Pilot Network Podcast. My name's Joe. I'll be your host for today's show. If you don't recognize my voice or my name, after you're done with this episode, go ahead and check out the previous two where I sit down and chat with Mr. Adam Yuhan. I'm really excited to be a new member of the network and really excited for today's conversation. Today's conversation is with one of my favorite people, Professor Tom Peterson. Tom is an aviation professor at Minnesota State University in Mankato, Minnesota. He's an Air Force Academy graduate, former Air Force aviator, and flew for Airborne Express for a number of years. We dig really deep into his background, really fascinating stuff. He flew multiple variants of the 135 platform during the Cold War, had some really interesting encounters with the Russians that we get into, and he also flew the E-4B, which... I didn't hardly know anything about until I knew Tom. It's the Air Force's variant of the 747 set up to be a National Airborne Mobile Command Center. So stick around for that. In the latter half of the podcast, we talk about some of Tom's thoughts for young pilots, student pilots, those going from student to professional. And right towards the end, we get into some of the difficulties of using VA benefits in order to pay for flight training. And if you're a veteran or you're a military pilot, you're almost guaranteed to run into people who want to use those VA benefits to learn to fly on the civilian side. So we encourage you to stick around for that. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Professor Tom Peterson. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited to be having this conversation. It's uh, been a couple years since we got together. The last time we did get together, neither one of us knew anything about global pandemics. I think I know less about them now than I did then. A lot of things have gone on since we've last talked. They sure have. And uh, But uh, we're going to get into a lot of different stuff today. We're going to dig into your background a little bit and talk about uh, what you have going on here at the university. But before we do that, I wanted to start by having you tell the story of a item that's in your office. I remember when I walked in for the first time as a student, if I remember correctly, it was on the left-hand side hanging on the wall about eye level, is a photograph. And the photograph is from taken from inside an aircraft, kind of looking out the wing and flying just beyond the end of the wing. And I mean just beyond the end of the wing is what appeared to me to be a Russian or maybe at that time Soviet fighter jet that's correct yep and uh so i was just wondering if you could share with me and with our listeners the story behind that photograph sure uh one of my aircraft i flew in the air force was the uh, rc-135 which is a reconnaissance airplane it's a variant of the boeing 707 and it carried about 30 some folks in the back uh doing reconnaissance or the spine so to speak and you know you you don't you don't reconnaissance or, or reconnoiter your own country. You don't do friendly countries. You don't fly around Canada or spy on them. You know, you, you do it off of the unfriendly people. And back in the Cold War days, uh, when we would go into certain parts of, of the uh, Pacific and certain, like the Baltic Sea, for example, the, the Russians, uh, or any other country for that matter, 
uh, we were target of opportunity, and, mm -hmm. and they would react, and they would send up fighters that would identify us and uh, call back and say, yeah, that's what it is. That's what, you know, they confirm who we were and tail number and everything else. Uh, usually, they were supposed to you know, stay half mile away or whatever. They would get close enough to identify you. But a lot of the pilots, because as they got closer to the aircraft, at the, you know, with the technology they had then, the people on the ground could not distinguish half mile from, you know, 10 feet. Huh. So they would say they're half mile, but they were sitting right there at 10 feet off the wing. And the majority of them did that. And so we would take pictures. Uh, there was an official camera in there to take pictures. And then there was our unofficial <laughs> cameras in there to take pictures. And, you know, everybody carried that. And so I took a couple pictures. Just I thought it was interesting. And, you know, people can see, you know, they, they did fly right up next to us. Uh, usually, they were no threat. I mean, there were several countries that if they did react to you, were quite unpredictable. North Korea, for example, hmm. you know, they reacted to you with an aircraft. We left. It was just unpredictable. Uh, Vietnam at the time, same thing. You know, if they reacted to you, you really didn't know what was going to happen. So we would leave. Uh, but the Russians, uh, the Israelis, um, most of the other uh, countries out there, they were not a threat. They were just going to come look at you. We were also a target of opportunity for the Swedes, the Germans. I mean, we had a lot of people come, you know, even the American, you know, mm. uh, fighters would use us as, as an opportunity to intercept. And so we would have a lot of different aircraft off the wing that in, in a flight. And depending on where we were in the world, uh, different airplanes, different, different Soviet fighters, uh, and, and how aggressive they were, it depended on where we were. You know, if we were in the... Uh, Sea of Japan, they were a little more aggressive. It got a little tighter. If we were in the Baltic Sea, for example, they didn't quite close, quite that close. That's incredible. I can't even imagine uh, going out there and just waiting for some whatever country to, to come pulling up alongside and saying, you know, skedaddle. Yeah, it was interesting, you know, and usually I never got too concerned about it. But we did have – there was one incident – in the Med, we were in, in the Mediterranean off of uh, Lebanon and Israel and, and that whole area. This was back when they were having the civil war in Lebanon and a and lot, of, lot of unrest in that area. Um, we had two Israeli uh, F-16s behind us. And usually the guys in the back, the spies in the back, knew why they were there. You know, they could intercept enough information that they could tell why they were there. But then they, then they came up to the cockpit, and one of them came up to the cockpit and said, we don't know why they're there. Hmm. And I, I kind of go, well, so what? I mean, is that important? And he said, just so you know, anytime Israel's getting ready to do something, they accidentally take out people that are snooping to, to keep it a surprise, you know, like a ship or any other airplane or whatever. The, was that the USS Liberty? Yeah. Yeah. 
And so I looked at him, and he goes, just telling you, you know, says, we don't know why they're there, and we don't know what they're planning to do. And he was visibly nervous, and he was visibly wow. concerned. And I finally said, well, do we need to leave? You know, do we need to get out of here? He said, not yet, but, but we'll just hang around for a little bit longer. <laughs> but it was the first time I really realized that, you know, this could be serious, and there could be a problem. And it was nothing, but it, it, it did make me realize that, you know, even the friendly people, so to speak, uh, if they don't want you there, it was an accident. You know, we just happened to misidentify an airplane. We shot it down. Sorry about that. You know, the whole routine. Right. But to be involved in that, to be part of that, it was sobering for me. So just because you know two guys on tv are shaking hands and and wearing suits doesn't necessarily mean that uh accidents quote unquote don't happen that's right close calls are up there and and, you know when the russians shot down that korean airliner the 747 um we were the first aircraft on on scene when they were doing search and rescue and they did not want somebody out there watching them do it can you uh for our listeners who don't know about that incident can you fill them in and kind of explain what happened yeah back in the uh early 80s they had a korean airliner that had navigation issues and they overflew soviet airspace and it wasn't just soviet airspace it was over soviet land and they misidentified the airplane it was at nighttime and they misidentified the airplane as a rc-135 they thought it was you know a u.s aircraft military aircraft and they sent a fighter up I think the the pilot, if I remember right, identified it correctly, but they told him to shoot it down. And so he did. Hmm. And this airplane went down in the Sea of Japan. They realized later that, you know, very quickly later, that uh, it was a passenger aircraft, a large passenger aircraft. And then they had to conduct search and rescue operations out there. And we were out there the morning after this happened. And... Uh, that particular flight, a lot of things changed. You know, our track changed. How long we were supposed to be out there changed. Um, they were making up the rules as we went along on that on that flight. But the Russians really did not want us there. And their fighters, when they came up to look at us and escort us, were uh, way more aggressive than they've ever seen them, trying to intimidate us and maybe, you know, discourage us from being there. But... You know, that went on for about three days, I think, that they were conducting those search and rescue operations. So when you say aggressive, can you give any more specifics? Well, it, they had several instances where the fighter would would uh, disappear. You know, you, you, they knew they were close, and then they would fly right up in front of the airplane, right in front of the airplane, light their afterburners, and, you know, the airplane would then fly through that air disturbance, you know, and, and it would it would cause some uh, rough air, you know, a little bit of a bump, but it was more just to frighten and intimidate. Yeah. And th- the fear was always that they're going to go too far. It's going to get too close. Uh, it, there's going to be a close call here. And, yeah, those things, I think, happened out there. Like I said, it, you know, the politics of the whole thing, uh, 
I'm sure nobody wanted it to happen, but they were also, you know, we don't want these guys around either. They weren't erring on the side of uh, caution. They were erring on the side of aggression. Yeah, and, essentially. you know, in the Far East, I can't say how often those Russian pilots flew, but I don't think it was all that often. Hmm. So, you know, the concern was always, you know, how skilled are they at this flying this airplane? And, you and know, flying right up next to you. Oh, right up next to you. <laughs> they tuck in really tight. And, and uh, you know, we, did, we were just a big lumbering airplane. I mean, we had no maneuverability. We were hoping that nothing would ever happen. Right. So, but yeah, that was, that was one of those times that it did get, it did get a little bit more interesting. Another interesting angle on that is that, you know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it echoes. And we, unfortunately in 2014, Malaysia Airlines flight 17 had almost this identical scenario. Of course it was shot down from the ground this time, but uh, a lot of the antics after that event uh, sound a lot like what happened after that yeah, airline flight. You know, when you have paranoid people out there, you're always going to have incidents like that, and and uh, I don't think you can avoid them. You know, p- airplanes stray. They they you know they don't always have the best air crew on board. They sometimes have issues with navigation equipment, even though it's highly sophisticated and 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 all that. But uh, you know, if it's misidentified and shot down, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it, right. it still happened. Now, I, I did a little research on that Korean air flight, and you can correct me if I... The, inter, the Internet's a dangerous place, so I, I'm not, I'm not uh, necessarily sold that I got the right information, but with what I read, it sounded like that that flight, they took off, and when they got to cruise, they had, they had been either on a heading or tracking a radial off of EOR, and they were supposed to engage the INS, and they just never changed the autopilot mode. I don't think so, yeah. And they just went into heading mode or something for a few hours. Yeah, I I think that's the theory. Uh, I'm not sure if they ever really really recovered everything on that airplane. Sure. Uh, And I don't think there were any survivors. So Hard to to know for sure what happened. Right. Well, your career spans some really interesting history, a lot of the uh, Cold War. And so we've already talked about that, but we're definitely going to talk more about that. I do want to go back a little bit, though, and ask you a little bit about your flying and or military origin story, because we've known each other a long time, and I actually don't know it. So I was kind of curious what got you thinking, especially at the time in history that you were at, what got you thinking about the military? And what got you thinking about flying when you were a young man? Uh, You know, I I didn't have any, when I was in high school, it was really interesting. I was going to be, you know, my whole life I want to be a forest ranger. I mean, that's what I, I saw myself doing. And when I was in high school uh, in the 70s, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, um, obviously Vietnam was going hot and heavy. And they had a draft. And the way the draft was working when I turned 18, or it was going to turn 18, is you got a lottery number. And if you are high on that lottery number, you know, if your number was really high, uh, that closer to zero or one, you had a good chance of getting drafted. And if it was lower, you'd probably have a better chance of not getting drafted. Well, mine was pretty, pretty close to the front of the line. 
And when I left high school in 1971, if I went to college, dropped out of college, had issues going through college or any of those kind of things, and even if I was in college, I didn't know, uh, I was eligible to get drafted pretty high, which I really had no desire to do. And so because I played football in high school, uh, some colleges were recruiting me and one of them happened to be the Air Force Academy. I didn't have any idea that they even existed until they stopped to talk to me. And they convinced me that it was the place to go, that as, as the uh, coach that talked to me said, hey, it's just like a, like a Boy Scout camp, no problem. <laughs> and, and I believed him. And so I went there and played football those four years, but uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't have any idea. Uh, I'd never given a thought. And I just know that once I started, that you don't quit anything you start, so I stayed. Well, then when it came time to graduate, and what do you want to do, it was either you have to go to pilot training, or, especially if you're a pilot qualified, or you have to go into it and explain to the general, it wasn't like anybody else, why don't you want to go? Well, that wasn't on my agenda either. I had no desire to go talk, tell somebody I didn't want to go fly. So, again, I had no idea what I was getting into, so I thought I'd say, try it. And pilot training was probably one of the more, more intense years of my life, but, uh, and it's like every flying, piece of flying, training is never any fun. But boy, afterwards, I have had the time of my life flying. And that's really how I got started. It was just an opportunity. I took it, and it's been working for me ever since. It beats selling insurance. I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, granted, my, you know, my life in the Air Force and, and in the airlines was, was it, to be honest with you, it was one adventure after another for me. So... Well, we're definitely going to get into some more of those adventures for sure. But I have to, I, I just have to honor my curiosity here. So generally speaking, the Air Force Academy is not a path that one casually goes down. There's, especially these days, I mean, if you don't know you want to go there by the time you start high school, most people can't get in these days. As I understand it, I'm not an expert on this at all, but just the, the cursory knowledge I have of this. So you show up on day one. To Boy Scout camp. Those guys saw you coming, by the way. Yeah, they <laughs> so did. You, so you you show up on day one. What are you thinking? What's going through your head? I, you know, I've read some brochures, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know if I can make it through. I don't know if I can cut cut the mustard on this thing, so to speak. Uh, I thought I would be struggling to get through any piece of it. Um, and then, after getting there and seeing other people that are there, I realized that I'm going to do pretty good. You know, I'm not going to have all that much trouble, uh, at least physically, getting through the basic training and those kind of things. It, it was very different. I mean, I, I didn't particularly like all the discipline building. You know, it's not hazing, but it's definitely um, stressful. But, you know, you know, you deal with it and, and 
I guess you could say you're better for it, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world. So academically, uh, you know, with the, with the course load that they have there and at the time, um, you know, most universities just have a, like a general education where you take a smattering of, of, of gen ed courses. The Air Force Academy, their idea of a general education at the time was you take a semester course or two semesters in every single major that was offered. And so I was taking courses in electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, astrophysics, all kinds of stuff that I was completely overwhelmed by. And I ended up studying a lot. Uh, I would, you know, after after a football game, you go back to the hotel if it was an away game, and I I spend the evening catching up on my books. You know, I had to study. I I didn't go out and do anything. I just I had to study, or I went to made it through. So if I wasn't uh, uh, you know practicing or down at the gym, I was studying. That's four That's, years of a lot of hard work. Well, for me, it was. Yeah. Other guys, I, I'd be jealous of those people that were, you know, could do this really quick and and retain everything. And for me, it was just a lot of work. I remember when I was in my first trip through college, I was a music major, and there was this. Our music history class was the hardest class I ever took in college, by a wide margin. And that includes after I came here and did the aviation stuff and everything else. It was a tough class and they graded on a curve and there was a kid in that class who would score a raw score of like 98 on a test and the rest of the class is topping out in like the mid 70s and I'm just thinking man what is this kid not doing is he not showering you know is he is he just studying while he's you know in the bathroom like what is he doing that he is able to score a 98 and there's just some people out there who can who just seem to devour material in a way that, that I can't comprehend. Oh, yeah. In all the math, I mean, it was really a math-heavy curriculum uh, in all the engineering and different different uh, math courses. I went through and got my grades on partial credit. If it wasn't for partial credit, <laughs> I don't think I would have graduated. C's <laughs> get degrees, you know. I mean, yeah. you, you get it done, you get it That's done. That's right. That's it. So, well, that's... That's great. Uh, so I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about your first assignment. So you go to pilot training, and then immediately out of <laughs> pilot training, you get selected back to be an instructor. And I remember when I was finishing up here at school, you were really adamant uh, to me and to a lot of other people about build your time instructing and the value of spending those first couple of years in an instruct, instructing capacity, if it's at all possible, which is pretty common on the civilian side nowadays. But what I was curious about was that those first couple of years out of pilot training for you, what, in what ways did that codify your thinking on things or develop your skills or set you up for maybe later success in your career? You know, when I went into, you know, you, what you do in pilot training at, at the time was based on your class standing, you know, 
if you were top of the class, you got like your first choice of aircraft, a follow-on aircraft, as opposed to the very bottom, you got whatever was left over kind of thing. So I had my, my ideas of what I wanted to do. You know, I, I wanted to fly a bigger airplane and, and uh, I, didn't, I really didn't relish flying fighters that much. And I went in and talked to the flight commander, you know, to, to talk about what I wanted to do, you know, and, and let, him, let him know my, my desires. And before I could even say anything, he, he told me, he says, well, you can tell me what you want to do, but I can tell you what you're going to do. And they had, you know, they, they scam off or they, they skim off the people they want to return. And so they told me I was going to be a T-38 instructor pilot, and I go, okay. I can live with that. Uh, wasn't too sure how, how I was going to do with that. And when I went to the instructor school for that down at San Antonio, it was a three-month course. You learn how to fly in the back seat of the T-38. Hardest thing you do is you figure out how to land your airplane when you really can't see a whole lot out the front. But my skills, my knowledge... My ability to to relate, to communicate, uh, I mean, it took leaps and bounds forward learning how to be an instructor and then instructing because you get so many different types of people, uh, different personalities, different ways of doing things. You have to be very, very aware of how the student's doing. Are they, are they grasping it? Uh, this student needs this kind of... Uh, approach this other student needs this kind of an approach we had international students uh, who struggled a lot and you had to have a different approach for them uh, you had to relate to all of them you really couldn't intimidate them it was already intimidating enough you know trying to learn how to do this uh, it was it was a very interesting experience you know to to take students through this high performance type of training and and have them have them figured out and and, and accomplish this uh, and like i said i had some really good ones and and i had some ones that i didn't lose anybody but boy they struggled and uh it was interesting to 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 come up with you know ways of you know connecting with them the thing about Air Force pilot training or any kind of, you know, government pilot training like that is you just don't get to keep going if you can't do it. There is, they, they wash you out if you can't do it. And so, well, I didn't want that to happen. They didn't want that to happen. And you only have X number of lessons that you can take, you know, do with them, and then it's over. So it was always a challenge that way. So I want to dig into a couple of pieces there, but I, but I'm going to go back to the selection process. So they handpicked you essentially and said you're going to go do this. Now you said when you were at the Air Force Academy that you were uh, you were putting in all of the hours in order to get through it, but then when you went to pilot training, they obviously saw something in you that they wanted back at the schoolhouse. So I'm kind of curious. Do you have any insight? Did they share with you what they thought or maybe another way of or, or maybe another question um, would be what what were the skills or techniques that you found most valuable in those first couple of years or that you learned the most about in terms of being an effective instructor you know I, I really I, I, I look back on pilot training 
I wasn't top of the class, but I was near the top. There were better pilots than I was that went through went through the uh, pilot training in my class. But I just had a, I don't know, an easy way about me, I guess. I, I didn't feel like getting too excited. You know, I, I didn't fail any check rides, um, but I thought I was kind of an average pilot. And I, I really didn't have any, I didn't have enough background to know, you know, how do, how do I relate to other, other students going through? You know, everybody had a grade book, but it, you really couldn't tell. And you listen to some students talk, and they were, they were like the best pilot in the class. They would talk that way all the time, uh, even though they weren't. And other students would be very quiet about it, but they were super good. I was just kind of a steady Eddie, and uh, easy to fly with. The instructors I flew with seemed to enjoy flying with me, and I enjoyed flying with them. So I know I have no idea how they selected people. So that seems like a good lesson to extract from this story, at least for me, is being a steady Eddie. And I, re- I remember going through school here, and uh, I remember you always saying something on the order of, you got to sound cool on the radio. <laughs> I remember you always saying that. And although, you know, maybe in jest, there's probably a lesson there, too, where as soon as you start getting elevated, you know, uh, emotionally, right, uh, nervous or um, a- anything like that, it might be time to bring the emotion back down, start making good decisions and digging in it, and solving the problem. It it does. You know, the instructor, especially as an instructor, uh, if you start getting overly excited, nervous, uh, yelling, uh, criticizing, significantly criticizing somebody, uh, they're going to get very nervous. They're going to get very tense. And the performance goes down. The learning goes down. You know, um, you had to keep your, keep your calm. And it may be inside you're going, this is scaring the crap out of me, or I have no idea what's going to happen next, or I have no idea what's going on, or I really don't know what I want to do, but you can't project that. You have to project that I got this under control. I know what I want to do as you work through that. Um, because if you're on a crew, other crew members are looking to you so what you know are we okay are we going to be all right what what's the plan what are we going to do uh and if you're panicking everybody's going to panic and so you you really have to kind of hold it together all the time no matter what the situation i'm i'm sitting here thinking about back on my instructing days and i've reflected on this before but when you go from student to instructor, all of a sudden you're the person responsible. And of course you're trying to learn how to teach and learn how to instruct, but you all automatically have some authority, right? And I remember, and then you go from being instructor back to being student, at least on the civilian side, because maybe you go to your first airline and now you're back to being a student. And after going through a couple of training programs, um, airline training programs in my career now, I really look back on my instructing days and thought, man, I was, 
you know, I, I could have been more steady Eddie and my, you know, my students were, they're always trying to get it right. And, um, they almost never need more energy. They almost always need things to level out. And so I'm wondering what, uh, and then we're going to cover this and then we'll kind of move on to the next stage in your career. But so you're, so you're flying with a student who's struggling and maybe they even have a motivation issue. Maybe they're kind of lackadaisical with their studying or something. How do you contend with that while also keeping things calm and allowing them to develop confidence in, in the cockpit? Yeah, that was interesting when, when a, a student's struggling here right now in our, in our aviation program, one of the questions we ask, especially if they're really not doing well at all, is do you like to fly? Almost every student says, yeah, I love it. I love flying. I mean, I just really love flying. But then the next question, obviously, is, well, how come you aren't out here more? How come you don't study this stuff more? I mean, if you really love this stuff, then your actions aren't meeting your, you know, what you're saying. And I tell students, training has never been fun. Training is hard. The fun comes after the fact. You know, once you're there, once you've arrived at wherever you're, you know, airline pilot, instructor pilot, whatever you're going to do, uh, that's when the fun begins because you're more confident. You're, you're more put together in what you're going to do. But training is never fun. And so the motivation part of this thing, you, you have to say, r- really, I mean, do you really want to do this? Because if you do, you have to commit to it. You can't just do this part-time. And we talk about examples of, you know, if you're learning to play the piano and you're going to practice it once a month, you're never going to get there. If that's how you can learn to fly, you're never going to get there. And so they have to evaluate their own life. And, you know, it's hard to motivate somebody uh, who really you know, they're not far enough along to really understand how great it is and, and, and what life looks like after you have accomplished this thing. Um, I'm going to say there are an awful lot of pilots going through training, whether it's military or civilian, you know, in, in, a, in a training program, who probably at one time or another, maybe more than once, have thought about, should I keep doing this? Should I quit? Do I want to quit? And then they just keep going. And at the end, they'll admit, yeah, I thought about quitting, and I'm glad I didn't. And, and uh, that's, you know, that really is what's going to make a good pilot. Um, they have to really dig deep and, and, and determine, do I really want to do this, and do I really want to be part of this world, and do I really like what I'm going to do? And once they decide to say, yes, it is, then it gets a lot easier. But sitting down across the table and trying to tell somebody, hey, you, you know, you've you got to get into this thing. And even when you're flying, if you make it a little more fun or if you explain how to, let's turn this into a challenge. Let's turn this into some kind of a, uh, we're going to be a problem solver today. We're going to do this today. We're going to enjoy this thing today a little bit more and and give them 
tools on how to fly better, how to, uh, you know, the techniques and, and some things that make it easier. Because when you sit in the cockpit of, a, of an airliner and you watch a really good pilot, boy, they make it look easy. And you think to yourself, I can do this. This isn't that hard. And then when you start to learn how to fly, you go, man, this, I don't get it. I can't get this done. But they make it look so easy. It's because they have figured out all those techniques, all those skills, and, you know, it's really no secret. And so much of it is muscle memory. It's just like playing an instrument. Yeah. They're, they're not consciously thinking about most of it. Yeah. So uh, it is, I mean, every student reacts differently, but, but the, you know, the motivation is important. I mean, they really have to want to do it. You know, I, it, there's an old joke, and I use this as an example, but, you know, the, the joke goes, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? How many? And the answer is only one. But the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's the same with so many things. The student has to want to do it or whatever it may be. I can't sit there and make you do it. I can encourage you. I can give you all the support you need. I'll give you all the tools you need to succeed, but you have to want to do it. And, you know, a lot of time has been wasted on trying to convince people that they should do it and they don't want to do it. I want to jump ahead a little bit now. So they send you from being an instructor pilot in the T-38, they send you to Offutt, uh, Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha. And that first stint there on the RC-135 is where you ended up engaging with the uh, Russians after that Korean Airlines flight. And then after a couple of years of flying the RC-135, and if you have anything else you want to cover during that period, that's fine. But you ended up getting selected into the E-4B. And until I met you, I didn't even know it existed. I didn't know anything about the uh, operation at all. And I'm going to completely punt to you on this because <laughs> I tried to put, I tried to do some research and put together some questions on this and there is not a lot of information out there, I think by design. So can you just tell us a little bit about that, that airframe, how you got selected into flying that and what life was like for those years while you were doing it? When my four years were coming up in the RC-135 there at Offutt, you know, usually you're going to get PCS. You're going to get moved to something. And I started looking around, and frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of options out there. And so I, you know, because I'm on the same base, I just walked down the street and talked to the uh, squadron down there, the, the E-4 squadron, and said, hey, you know, are you looking for anybody? And, and uh if so, I'd like to, you know, put my name in there and see if you'd be willing to take a look at me. They, you know, one of the requirements for flying an airplane is you had to be air refueling qualified. So uh, we did that all the time, did the air refueling, and it would save the Air Force a move, and they could look at my records, and they talked to me, and so it was, okay, we'll take you, and expect training to start at this time 
And all the training for the 747, since the Air Force didn't have any, uh, was done with a civilian airline. And so I did my training with TWA in New York at the time, uh, learning to fly their 747. And then when we came back to Offutt, then we had to relearn how to fly our airplane. And then we did our continuation training in the simulator with United Airlines. And they had a different airplane. So got got some good experience with with all this stuff. Um, One type rating and three airplanes, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Completely different airplanes, actually. Yeah. But uh, you you know you were checked out as a, as a what they call aircraft commander or captain, and uh, you know the, essentially the mission was supporting the president. It was a National Airborne Command post, and so at the time we just would follow the president around. It was his his command post, uh, so wherever he was at, we would sit alert nearby, and uh, wait for something to happen, which never did. But I mean. Uh, occasionally there would be exercises and, and those kind of things that we would participate in, but a lot of it was just sitting and killing time, you know, waiting to go. And, and as he would move, we would move. And uh, from that standpoint, the mission was a little bit slow. Now, the training that we did was fantastic. It's probably the most proficient I've ever been in an airplane. Uh, we did an awful lot of takeoff and landings. We did an awful lot of refueling. And flying that big airplane around, I mean, you got pretty good at it. We had some, you know, interesting rules that if if it did get serious, you know, we had to have some skills that most people don't have. And uh, so it was kind of fun practicing some of that kind of stuff. So the training was fun. I mean, I was, I enjoyed all the training. I enjoyed flying the people I did. It was always nice to see certain, you know, level of uh, professionalism from the back end and from from our side it was it was a kind of a cool airplane to fly it was just a big sports car so uh, i enjoyed that piece of it but that it was a very it was a four-year tour and after that was four years you know of of sitting alert and uh, flying that airplane and you know teaching other people how to fly it when they came in I look back on that as, as, as a really good assignment. So basically, the if I understand it right, the mission for the E-4B was to ensure continuity of government in the event of some nuclear attack. That, or that's correct. Like that. I mean, if there was a national emergency, we would rendezvous with Marine One, the Air Force, or I mean the Marine helicopter that, that ferried the president around, we would rendezvous with them, and they would transfer him... Uh, and his key staff people that were with him onto the airplane. And it, the back end of the airplane was set up to be a complete, you know, had conference room, radio, you know, all the communications of the world at the time. Uh, it was well set up for the, the mission that they, that they were going to do. How much interaction did you have with the folks in the back? Were you just driving the thing and they did their stuff in the back, or was there a lot of coordination? Uh, there was some coordination. They would... In peacetime, you know, as long as there was, everything was normal, they would try and do things that ATC, air traffic control, wouldn't, you know, they, they, they would say, you know, are you kidding? No, you can't do that. Uh, and, and sometimes they didn't understand in the back, and we had to say, no, we, we just can't do that. You know, they won't let us do that. Because um, sometimes people will, will get to thinking, hey, we're the top dog, we're the top priority, you know, we should get it. And no, 
you know, right. ATC is a top dog, and they they control the skies, and you know we're not gonna we're not gonna get what you want. Um, but there was some coordination, yes, and we had to get along, obviously. But you know, we 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 didn't have very many problems with you know making things work with with the battle staff in the back. To to bounce off of that, and then I'm thinking back on the proficiency piece and and learning some of these. Uh, maneuvers that you would never learn if you were flying that platform in the civilian world. I remember my regional days, I was somewhere out east, like Scranton or Allentown, somewhere out in that, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, New York area. And we were sitting on the taxiway waiting for a flow time or something. And Air Force Two was doing practice approaches at the field that we were at. And they were, they were, um, you know, doing uh, VOR approaches and they're doing circling approaches and all kinds of stuff. And I just remember as just a civilian guy uh, myself, just thinking it has got to be pretty fun doing some of these uh, maneuvers like you're talking about in, I mean, a 747 and that kind of platform that had to be a lot, a really good time. We did an awful lot of touch and goes and, and approaches at smaller fields you know waterloo iowa sioux falls south dakota des moines we could get whatever we wanted you know we could whatever approach we wanted we would ask for and they would give it to us it wasn't that busy of an airport and we could do touch and goes on those runways and and uh so you do you you know you did get really really proficient at multiple different approaches and smaller airports which we had to be proficient with and uh, circling and all the different, you know, you had no excuse for not getting on the ground, for not getting, you know, rendezvous with the president no matter where it was going to be. So you practiced on, on a bunch of different runways and a bunch of different approaches. I mean, you had to be the best. So by this point, after when this assignment is concluded, you've spent about eight years at Offit? I did, yeah. And... Uh, just an aside about Offit, you and I got to spend a little time there uh, for an air show a few years back. That's true. We had a really good time. It was fun. It was one of my highlights of my uh, instructing days. And for the folks listening, we have a lot of military folks, former military folks. If you're ever at Offit, man, go get a workout in because the gym at Offit is incredible. Yeah. Offit, uh, you know, they've put some money into infrastructure there. Uh, Stratcom is still there. Uh, they do fly the uh, E-4 and the RC aircraft out of there along with a Navy uh, command and control. But it, it is a nice base. It is a nice location. It's a nice town. So you guys spend eight years there, you and the family. And then they say, guess what? You get to go to England. Yeah, that was kind of a, I kind of volunteered for that. I knew I had, was going to go probably go back into reconnaissance, and it was a really good staff job i guess so to speak because it was still flying uh, i could continue to fly build hours keep my keep my proficiency and then you know work the work the st- staff side of reconnaissance missions in europe so from that standpoint it was really a great job and it was an interesting time because you were there when the berlin wall fell that's true and it was it was you know one of the one of the advantages, you know, 
because Germany lost the war, one of the things that they had to do was for American forces over there, they would bring groups over there, uh, and I don't know how I ever got selected into this, but they would bring you over to Berlin when the Berlin Wall was still up. So you got to see the west side, which was absolutely phenomenal, uh, beautiful, and then you got to go over and look at the east side, which was really dreary. And, I mean, it was very, you could see the contrast really, you know, quick. Plus, you got to look at that Berlin Wall, which was unbelievably scary. It was not to keep people from entering in. It was definitely to keep people from leaving. And that was serious stuff. Um, and you got to see that up close and personal, and, and it was quite the experience. Um, but yeah, then a few, you know, I think a year later, or a year and a half after I got to do that, it did come down. And I have a, I have a souvenir, a piece of it on my bookshelf. <laughs> I was doing a little reading on it today. I think they still sell pieces of it. A and even if it's not of the wall, I mean, all you got to do is put a chunk of concrete on the gift shop shelf and say, hey, you yeah. know. Put you some know. graffiti on it. Yep. <laughs> 20 bucks, you know. Uh, so what's your family thinking? Did they like did they like the time over there? Uh, you know, when I went over there, I, I again, it was kind of like going to the academy. I really had no idea what I was getting into. Um, I quickly discovered that housing was on short supply. And trying to find a place to live was quite the challenge. Uh, we moved a couple times because it just wasn't right, you know. Finally, we got on base over at Lake and Heath, RAF Lake and Heath, which is right next door. And that made life way better uh, for us. But adjusting to life in Europe, adjusting to life in England in particular, uh, it was interesting. You know, for the three years we were there, we kind of liked it. But once we came home again, I kind of look at it as my USA appreciation tour. <laughs> you really, You really come to appreciate all the things we have here the wide roads. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many things about living here that, that you really come to appreciate uh, that they don't have in England. And, you know, the, the things that, that I do miss, you know, it was nice to sit in a pub on a rainy night, you know, or it, th there was just certain pieces of it that were really nice. But uh, overall, it was good to come home again. So the trips that they were taking people across over into East Berlin, was that sort of a uh, sort of an opportunity to take Americans and, and take a peek at the uh, failed promises of communism? Yeah, is that kind of exactly the what it was. You know, you went through Checkpoint Charlie. They, you know, they had all the Russian guards come on and East German guards come on and look at you and, you know, check you out. And then you rode the bus over and you walked around a little bit. You had to be in uniform. You couldn't. You couldn't go over in civilian clothes. Mm. And uh, just look in the shops and, and you know, I mean, they had, they had walls there that at chest high still had deep ruts in them from the firing squads they had way back in World War II and, and before. I mean, some things just had never been cleaned up or fixed. It was very sobering to, to, to see how life had been, and nobody bothered to even pick, pick, pick anything up. I mean, it was still, 
just left like it was. So I, I, it's not something I would want to do, not, not live over there. Well, you got sent back to Offutt, so you didn't have to live over there. No. They, they brought me back to Offutt uh, as the operations officer for the reconnaissance squadron. And uh, that just storm, well, the Gulf War, that whole thing was just getting going. You know, they called it Desert Shield to begin with, and it turned into the war itself, Desert Storm and, and the Gulf War. And so I got caught up in all that, went over there, did my time with that. Uh, Any so, highlights from that time over in the desert? You know, I, I spent an awful lot of time over there in between the, the actual war itself, but then the aftermath, just managing the forces that were over there, I think I probably spent close to a year uh, off and on, up to a year or more over there. Very interesting world over there, but um, the war itself, it was really, we flew out of Riyadh, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the airspace was unbelievably congested. Mm-hmm. And there was, you know, AWACS was up there to help quote unquote, to control traffic, but there were airplanes everywhere. And uh, it was a little bit frightening. That was more my concern was just making sure that we stayed out of everybody's way and they stayed out of our way. Separation. Yeah. So you were, you were the operations officer for the 38th Reconnaissance Squadron at that time. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. In that squadron, in the early 60s, I believe, was the squadron that operated Operation Looking Glass? Uh, that was a different squadron. Okay. On the same base, but the uh, Looking Glass was operated by the 2nd Airborne Command and Control Squadron. And that was your next assignment? You yeah, my next were assignment, the commander yeah. of that I was squadron, squadron commander for that one. Uh, not by choice. They drafted me for that one. And it, it wasn't a bad job. But things had changed, you know, maintenance had come into the squadron. They, they were just, there was a different structure in the Air Force at the time. And so we had the main maintainers for the aircraft. We had all the radio operators in the back. We had all the flight crew. So it was a really big squadron with a lot of different training requirements. And the whole mission of that looking glass was changing. It was going from a 24-hour operation into a random flight, eight-hour flight Every day, different times. Didn't they have it going 24 hours a day for something like 29 years? Yeah, it went for a really long time. So everybody was trying to transition into this new world that was happening. And then on top of that, the chief of, you know, the chief of staff of the Air Force um, decided that he wanted to rename squadrons. And, I mean, I, unbelievable amount of time was spent having to change our squadron from the second axe into the seventh airborne and command control squadron we had to get our patches approved at his level if we were going to change our squadron patch i mean it was just a ridiculous amount of of stuff that we had to do (laughs) and and i felt sorry for the guys i mean you know it, it was just a lot of work to you know on top of everything else that we were dealing with so one of the things that I, I saw when I was doing some research um, and looking over your bio was that you were the commander of the 2nd Airborne Command and Control Squadron from 92 to 94. And then in 94, if you go to Wikipedia, it says that 
Operation Looking Glass was transferred from the second to the seventh. Right. And what you're saying is, is it was the same unit. They just changed the name. They just changed the name <laughs> and, the, and the patch. And we had to go through like three patches before we finally got one approved. It, it, I mean, it was just, the nonsense was just overwhelming for me. I'm thinking, well, we have a lot more important things to do than, than this stuff. So you're a commander of a unit now, um, other than some of the logistical challenges. Were there any good lessons that you took from that time or, you know, dealing with personnel and man- uh, managing Oh, things? you know, I had, you know, my senior NCOs were outstanding. And I really relied heavily on those guys. I mean, really heavily. And, and uh, boy, they ran that unit. Those guys were really, really good. That was one thing I learned is, you know, you need, you know, you need to have good help, and then you need to just give them minor direction, and they'll run with it. And you let them, you know, you don't need to micromanage. You don't need to, you know, make every, come up with every idea. Uh, you got a lot of competent people that can do a lot of good work. And that made my life way easier, that I had good, good senior NCOs. Um, but boy, you know, the military is a cross-section of, of the rest of society, and, and we had super people in there, and we had some real dirtbags in there that, you know, you were constantly having to deal with legal issues and, and I mean, I'll be honest with you, criminal issues. So, uh, yeah, that was the tough part. And it can be hard not to drag everybody else down while discouraging the one or two bad apples from oh yeah and, and you're dealing with them i mean you know there's gonna th- there's gonna be consequences i mean you're having to do all the paperwork you're having to do you know go to court marshals and i mean it's just oh man all the stuff that's at the top of your list yeah, that's right all that fun stuff so you had so much fun doing that that you ended up uh, retiring in 95 and going over to the civilian world so you get done at uh, you get done in the Air Force, and you, you go over to the civilian side. And if we have time, we're going to come back and talk about that. But, you know, nowadays, uh, there are a lot of tools to help somebody with that. Uh, like, uh, you know, we just had a TPNX back in April, which was a networking event that we did here at TPN. And it was, you might recognize it as kind of a job fair. There are a lot of airlines there who... Uh, Man, they did a great job. The the recruiters got through a ton of people, and a lot of our attendees, a patience was a requirement, and they were all super patient, and we're really grateful for the attendees as well as the uh, the airline staff and all of our vendors there. But a few of our uh, sponsors at TPN and vendors at the at TPNX, like um, Milt ATP and Milkeep, you know these are tools that help pilots who are going from the military side to the civilian side and making it as seamless as possible. And I know back in the day it was not quite so seamless and it was a lot of work and it still is, but luckily there's some tools. If you want to, um, if you're listening now and you want to learn more about that, head over to the pilotnetwork.com, scroll down past the cover image and check out some of our sponsors there. There's links there and you can check out those tools if those apply to you. But I want to jump ahead to after you got done flying for ABX and you ended up 
getting hired at Minnesota State University here in Mankato. When I got here in 2010, I think you started here in 2008. When I got here in 2010, we had, I think, seven airplanes. And when I left, we had a few more than that uh, when I left instructing seven years ago. But you guys have grown tremendously in just the last seven or so years. I was wondering if you could just share a little bit of the trajectory of the program, where you guys are at today, what you guys are up to. Sure. Uh, when I got here in 2008, we probably had 50 students, I'm thinking. And <clears throat> a lot of collegiate aviation programs, I can't say a lot, but a, a number, um, they do struggle in an academic world at times. Uh, they don't always get the support from the administration or the university that 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 you know you would think they would get. Uh, one of the initial issues that I noticed here was they would look at our program as you know well that's a tech school, it's not a it's not a four year degree, and uh, you know why why are we doing it here? And so just getting some of the respect to to say yeah it is an academic and it is a lot more complicated than just going out and learn how to fly, fly an airplane. It's not like learning to drive a truck. Um, but getting academic people to understand that uh, it's a slow process sometimes. And um, understanding, you know, in today's world, the human factors and the uh, uh, avionics and, and just the uh, technology that's involved and the safety aspects of it uh, i mean this these things have come a long ways over the last you know 10 years or 15 years uh and they become a bigger bigger uh, factor in things you know especially the mental health of pilots um, and those kind of things so the more the more educated the pilot is these days, the the less trouble they're going to have with the company, the less trouble the company's going to have with them, and uh, the better they're going to go through training. I mean, that's there's been research on that, and it's it's pretty well been panned out that that's how it works. So when we started out here, we were barely hanging on. Actually, they were thinking about closing our program. Uh, for a couple of years, it it uh, had fallen on some bad management and uh, other things. The the atmosphere in the airlines was it was hard to get a job. It took forever to get an interview. Uh, people were flight instructors for three years or more before they could they could even consider getting a job. And that wasn't necessarily an airline job. That was just any other any, job any that wasn't job flying, right? And and so you know going to people and saying, yeah, come on, spend, you know, $80,000 on an education and, and, oh, maybe you might get a job after you get done. Uh, it, it didn't appeal to too many people. Now, having come out of the airlines and just looking at our seniority list, I knew that by the time I was going to retire, I, my, you know, I was going to move up like 600 numbers on our seniority list. So I knew that the retirements were just over the horizon, you know, or going to start any, any, any year. I knew that coming in here, and I'm trying to persuade people that, no, this is really going to change. Uh, we got a reprieve. We, we, they did not close us. And then we started uh, trying to market the program and 
changed the program so that it did become more professional. We did turn out more professional pilots. We did uh, turn out better educated pilots. And it's kind of been a, a slow process, but when you go to try and change a culture, uh, it's just that way. And changing the culture at our at the airport with the flight training, changing the culture on campus, changing the, the mindset of people, it, it just took some time. But... And this isn't unique to you guys. This is industry-wide. A lot of these changes were happening during this time. So right. you guys are just a sort of a microcosm of that right. bigger scale change. And as we, uh, as time progressed, uh, we started getting better support uh, at the university level. We have some adjunct here that are connected to airlines. They're alumni, and they live in the area, and, and they're connected to, to airlines. Um, and then our graduates, when they would go to a uh, regional airline, did really, really well. I mean, we, we slowly developed a really solid uh, reputation uh, for the product we put out. Uh, we made some strategic changes. We, we uh, got AABI accredited, which is the aviation accreditation. Uh, we added a CRJ, uh, we call it a simulator. It's a, it's a procedure trainer, but it, it's the full, you know, the only thing it doesn't do is move. It's got all the active working switches and FMSs and, and those things and a screen, wraparound screen that, that's, you know, very realistic. I've been in it. it you feel like you're moving. Yeah, it you're does. It, you know, you can get yourself a little bit sick, you know, if you manhandle the controls. And so we're, we were able to uh, go through what a new hire would go through. You know, we were able to put students through about 40 hours of new hire training, so to speak, uh, kind of a combination of the old one, 121 and then the new AQP type thing. It was kind of a combination thing on our syllabus. But we found that when students would go to the airlines, I mean, they they would go right through. I mean, they had no issues. They had no problems. And the airline said, we'll take more of those guys. And so we developed a reputation. And then other airlines took note, particularly Delta and Sun Country. And they've come here. And we're part of Delta Propel now. Uh, they come in and interview our students. And Sun Country does the same thing. They come in and interview our students uh, and offer them conditional job hires before they even graduate so uh, things have really changed here well as those changes happened and then the word finally got out that there's a significant shortage of pilots out there uh, and that we're a reputable school our enrollment just skyrocketed and now today we're sitting a little over 600 students so managing the growth has been the biggest challenge here it's been rapid growth, and I know that sometimes with rapid growth, things can go sideways. So keeping it on a very uh, professional level, keeping the quality and, and maintaining uh, our standards, it, it's been a challenge. What is one of the key pieces or key things that you guys have done here in order to ensure that those standards get maintained or, or one of the one of the things that you guys have done um, that's been especially important for your during this growth you know like like I mentioned getting accredited 
gives you a lot of credibility. And when we had, when we first applied for credit accreditation, this was about nine years ago or so now, eight years ago, it makes you look at your program and, and review it. You know, they do this thing called a self-study before they come in and, and, and visit. Boy, I mean, you look at every piece of your program and then you have to have evidence to prove that you're doing certain things or that you're accomplishing certain things. So you can't fake it. That helped a lot. And then once we got accredited, you know, that ups your credibility with the airlines, ups your credibility with, with a lot of things. We, you know, we, we don't just say we're good. I mean, here, we'll show you that we meet high standards. And there it is. Um, that and then, you know, we had some people that advocated for us with the airlines. And, and they actually listened. They came in and looked at what we did and how we did it. Uh, they got feedback from the regional carriers that our students mostly go to, got good feedback on that. And uh, after that, you know, it, it just took off. I mean, we have developed now a, a, a good reputation for what we turn out. And um, we've been able to bring in students that right now, uh, freshman year, I'm going to say we lose maybe about 20% of the students that come in, initially start somewhere in the private or early instrument training. Um, but that's, I mean, you want some attrition. I mean, not everybody is meant to be a pilot. If you have no attrition, it probably means that people are getting through that maybe ought not to. Yeah, your standards are too low. And... If you look at any academic program in any college, I imagine that there's at least that attrition in the first year just because people change their interests. They they come out and they go, yeah, I like, I like riding in the plane, but I don't want to do all the other stuff. Or maybe I don't like it as much as I thought I did. Or, you know, I, I just like the sunglasses and I thought I looked good in them. And, <laughs> That's and, right. <laughs> I, I want to walk down the... the 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 jetway with carrying my you know pulling my roller bag and everybody look at me yeah <laughs> if you can't look good why are we doing any of this that's, that's right that's all I can say but you know you find that that students drop out of freshman year for a host of reasons I mean a they don't they realize it isn't what they thought it was going to be or b they don't want to do the lifestyle after they thought about it they don't want to do the travel or the being gone from home thing. Um, some of them just flat out can't do it. I mean, they either don't have the physical skill or they don't have the thinking skills. Uh, they realize that they're overwhelmed or they're out of their league and they don't want to do it. So there's a host of reasons why students decide that they don't think they want to continue. But it's good that they figure it out early before they get a lot of money involved in this thing. I have a question about that. So... Flying attracts a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. And sometimes you get a student who isn't making the progress you'd like to see. And they're not considering quitting. But you reach a point where you might wonder, how am I going to get this person to do what they need to do to pass the check ride? That's a difficult situation because the student wants to continue. And you're pooling resources, different instructors, you know, you're, you're taking a look at the training program and maybe can we modify something to help them out? But there's, all, there's a time clock ticking and there's money ticking away. And at some point, 
you have to inter- interject. So I'm kind of wondering how you think about managing a scenario like that where you're thinking, I don't know if this student can make it. The number of students that, that like you said, are, aren't going to make it or are going to struggle to make it, uh, they aren't, it's not a great number. Almost always it's, it's something that they've created. You know, very seldom you find a student who is struggling so hard that they're going to not very, very likely not make it, and they're showing up every day to fly. They're showing up every day to study. They 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 take extra sims. I mean, they they're doing everything they can to to pass, and they just can't do it. Those are very few and far between. Most of the ones that are s- struggling, it's self-induced. They don't fly very often. They think you know they they'll they'll go home on summer break. You know, there'll be one or two rides before check ride, and they'll, they'll just go home. And you just go, you know, they won't listen to you. You know, we, we tell them, no, finish, get this done. And they think they can come back like riding a bike and just pick it up and be done. And it never works that way. Um, so a lot of this stuff is self-induced on the student's part. Uh, they don't, it's, it's, it's unusual, uh, it's very difficult to hand a student a book and say, here, study this. Like, for example, the aircraft manual. They don't know how, they never did it in high school. They didn't have to open a book, they never studied. And so now they're, you know, we're finding we have to teach a lot of skills to students that we thought they would have already brought to college, you know. Can you expand on that? I'm. This is something I'm really curious about because I'm really thankful that when I got to college, I wasn't, uh, initially learning to fly and I got to make fall on my face in a different major when I was a young man and when I ended up coming in and learning to fly and, and starting the aviation program I had a little bit of life experience behind me if you could wave a magic wand and every student who came in had one skill or one set of skills um, that you would like to see these students coming in with what might that be you know, when I, when I was a student in college, I took notes. I could not remember if I didn't take notes. And half the students in class take notes, and half of them sit there like they have a steel trap for a brain, and they'll remember everything that you're telling them. And you know they can't. Um, I, I think they went through high school with minimal studying, minimal homework, uh, and that's their idea of what education is, is minimal minimal study minimal work and in flying it's so much more studying and so much more work and opening a book and learning what's in there and knowing where to find it and i think a lot of students don't have those skills uh or their weak skills you know now students that were in advanced classes and and had had good high school experiences with education you know they they don't struggle near as much but if they skated through high school, they're going to have a hard time going through aviation uh, education. Um, you just have to know it. You can't fake it. You can't pretend to know it. You have to know it. And you find that out on that oral exam with the FAA. You sure do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that first that first check ride for everybody's tough. And, you know, really, they never get easier. And they do get easier, but... Um, there's always a little bit of anxiety going into them. Everybody I know 
who takes their job seriously, even at the airline, they're always nervous going into training just because yeah. they want to do a good job and you have to want to do a good job. So, so I want to, oh, I would say, you know, if, if they've, if they've learned how to study, if they, if they can focus, that's, if they can do that, come in here, then they're going to probably do okay. Yeah. I'm glad that I uh, got one kind of swing at college early on and then got to take another swing when I um, came here because, uh, I know coming up through school, I always did well in middle school and high school and stuff. And I'm not sure that that was uh, good for me because I was a worksheet filling out fiend. I could do, I could fill out worksheets like nobody's business, but guess what? When you get to college, that's not the game anymore. You have to be able to apply it, especially in the airplane. So I think that, um, bridging that gap is really important. And I don't, you know, there's, there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to do that in, you know, in high school and stuff. And um, I'm not smart enough to, to know how to achieve that. I kind of want to go to the other end and maybe think a little bit about or get your thoughts about if you could ensure that every one of your students left the university having fully absorbed one concept or having fully developed one set of skills or, one I, or, or fully accepted one idea, um, what might that be? We've been to a number of, we go to different conferences every year, but the ones that are the best have airlines that are there. And we talk to the training people at particularly the regional carrier, but even the majors are the same way. I got friends in FedEx and Delta that I talk to all the time, United. And the one thing that the airlines complain about, or they don't currently complain, but they mention is the lack of professionalism that you're seeing right now, uh, especially with new hires. And I think if we can do one thing here, it is to help the student to develop that professionalism, to help them mature and figure out how to uh, problem solve, how to make decisions. Uh, these are skills that they don't have. They, they never had to solve a problem on their own. They've They've had parents who have taken care of everything. Um, they don't know how to take control. They don't know how to do some of these things. Uh, and we're having to, to teach that. But the professionalism is one of these areas that if they can grasp that concept, if they can get a handle on that, that leads them to want to continue learning, continue education, to be the best, to develop solid airmanship skills to understand you know all the various human factors involved to to be sensitive to those things uh, it helps them to develop a safety attitude uh, which will transition then into a safety culture wherever they go um, it's the professionalism that we're trying to develop because along with that goes everything else and that's harder to do than it sounds. I mean, we talk about it a lot, um, and we require it with our instructor pilots, but even with that, uh, they're not always picking it up. Some pick it up really well and mature and turn into unbelievable good graduates, you know, good pilots, uh, good crew members, and others just struggle, but I know we sure give them every tool, every opportunity. We talk about all these different scenarios. We talk about a lot of different things that are expected. Uh, 
we really hit the professionalism hard, and we hope that they walk away with an idea of how that is and they can keep working on it. I want to dig into some of the specifics here. A lot of our listeners are current or former military. That's probably the majority of our listeners. But for those who might be listening, who are learning to fly, maybe they're recent, uh, you know, recently certificated pilots, or they're thinking about learning to fly. I want to talk to those folks right now, because you mentioned this word professionalism. And, you know, let's be honest, the, the folks who learn to fly in the military if they're going to have a problem going into the civilian world, that's probably not going to be it. They learned how to do that piece. And for even some of the folks who are either veterans, which we're definitely going to talk about, uh, or who maybe had some life experience and then went to learn to fly, that's probably not the problem that they're going to have. But I can only imagine as an 18-year-old walking in and going into a program like this and being 22 and coming out and having to go and, or should I say getting to go fly for an airline at the age of 22 or 23? Um, you know, some of us are we're still in development at that age. So when you talk about the professionalism piece, and, and you, if you were going to advise student pilots, younger pilots, on how to develop that, what do some of the specifics look like? I don't think a lot of students understand how they come across you know, they don't know what their fellow students think. They don't know what their instructor pilot thinks of them. You know, it's just a, a you know, more this relationship. And, you know, they don't know how their nonverbal communication, what it is, how it's affecting things, um, just how they act. And they've acted a certain way for, for their, you know, their whole life or with the other adults or their parents. And it, it just doesn't happen that way, especially in a cockpit. Um, if you step into the cockpit and you're, you know, you're not going to get along personally for some reason, your personalities clash a little bit, the only way that flight's going to get done safely is by both pilots being very professional about it. You know, And so you have to start bringing in the accountability factor here you have to bring in uh, discussions on and there because because I just don't think they're aware of this stuff. The soft skills you have to have, the decision making, the you know communication skills. It's just trying to relate to them. You know, yeah, this sounds kind of boring, but human factors are still going to be important because you're going to fly with a lot of people that you have no idea that things are dealing with today. And is it going to affect this flight? Uh, and how are you going to relate to that? I, I think that's a great point because I think in almost all circumstances, when you fly with somebody who is outside the norm, they're almost always dealing with something difficult in their personal life. It's almost universal, I think. Yeah. If you, if you really get talking with them, at least that's what I found. And then usually once you do get them talking about it a little bit, they tend to even out a little. They they do. And... and you know, you just got to be non-threatening, but there's always going to be something that's going to affect them. And you have to be able to be sensitive to that because different life events affect women and men differently and affect different people differently. And you don't know, you know, for you, it might be what, that's not a big deal, but for that person, it's a huge deal. And so, you know, you have to be very 
very aware and, and how do you respond to that and how do you uh, work with that because the fight's still got to be done safely and uh, if you don't have the skills to recognize some of that or to work with that then it's going to be a difficult difficult cockpit a couple of years ago i read a book by a, a guy named robert green who our listeners may have heard of he wrote a book called the 48 laws of power he wrote a book called mastery and he wrote a book called The Laws of Human Nature. And I read this book a couple of years ago, and it's about all of the things that you're talking about. What makes people tick? What, what contributes to a person's ego? Because we all have one. How do you interact with that person, with your own ego and with other people's, and not um, and be productive, right? And I was reading this book, and it's a long one, but it's worth the read. If Pick it up, read it, just take a chapter a week or something and, and then, cause you could read a chapter a month, honestly, and just mill it over for a month. But it really got me thinking about how I interacted with people. And I got to admit, there were a few times while I was reading that book that I'm cringing thinking, boy, I said this thing five years ago and boy, I could have handled that different, but it was really enlightening is what I'm saying. So as an 18 year old, if you've never had, you know, a real job, and you go off to college, you learn to fly, and then you become, and then you head off to an airline. Um, yeah, those are skills that no matter what career you're in, you have to learn. And ours is no exception. There's another book that I want to mention called Verbal Judo, which is a lot easier to read. It's kind of a fun read. And it just talks about when you're dealing with somebody difficult, just easy ways around it. Or somebody that you just don't relate to naturally, actually, is maybe even a better way to say it. Because we all don't relate to each other naturally. Um, the same way so it's, it's interesting in that you know the students come from all various backgrounds here and and um, we talk about different ethical issues that they'll face you know and and how do you make your decision you know is, is it a professionalism thing or is it an ethical thing or is it both and if you're the first officer or you're the co-pilot and the captain or aircraft commander does something that you're going that doesn't seem right that doesn't seem like it's very ethical uh how do you handle that what are you going to do do you and, have any go-to scenarios or or sort of uh well, problems that you give to your students to think about we we give a scenario and that this one this is the one that pops in my head right now but your captain's on overtime you bid an overtime flight and taxis out very slow Pulls over to the side, tells tells you to contact Tower, tell him you'll be delayed, waiting for your numbers, and you're sitting there with the numbers in your hand, you know, ready to go, and and then takes off. He, you know, the captain takes the leg and he flies very slow. ATC asks if you want some directs. He goes, nope, we'll fly the flight plan. And you you look at your ETA and you know you're going to be about you know 30 minutes past eta because that's how slow you're going and you mentioned it to the captain and he said i'm on overtime i need extra cash and it'll help you too and you're right off reserve right off of training you're all gung-ho and you do you go okay this is how we do it in the in the airline world or this, I mean, we're going to have passengers miss their connections. We're going to have people that are late. Um, you know, we're going to be timed out on my next flight. I can't go. 
I mean, who knows what's going to follow on from this. Ethically, the guy's probably not doing the right thing. But as a first officer, how do you handle this thing? And what do you say? And, you know, you, our students have no idea how to navigate these things. They don't have any ethical directions. They don't have, you know, do you make yourself instrument current again? Do you pad your logbook? Do you make yourself landing current again, even though you aren't? Um, do you make yourself night current? There's all these other ethical things. You know, do you take an airplane that you know you shouldn't, but the boss says we're going or you're fired? Uh, how do you stand your ground? How do you make your decisions? How do you develop the ethics you need to, to be safe? Because for a lot of these kids, their their idea of ethics is if my family said it was okay to do this, and then it's okay to do this. And, you know, so you may have grown up in a world where it's okay to, to tell, the, tell a lie. It's okay to, you know, be mean to people or whatever it may be. I mean, that's the world you grew up in. So ethically, you're on solid ground with, as far as you're concerned. And it may clash with the ethics that the profession requires. And it's really interesting to see how students have to sort through this stuff because they really don't know how to, you know, handle these prickly issues without stepping over a line with the captain. Well, you can spend a career learning how to do it effectively. Do you have any um, mental models or tools or rules of thumb that you give to students to help navigate, start we, to navigate some of these things? We, you know, we'll tell them, if you think it's wrong, it's probably wrong. And... The nice thing about most airline companies, uh, most pilot groups, is you do have a union, and within that union, there is a professional standards committee. And we tell them, you don't go to the chief pilot, you don't go to the captain, you know, and tell them he's all messed up or she's not right or whatever. Uh, find a professional standards committee person and say, help me out here. And this is what happened, this is what I saw, how do I handle this, or am I? Do I even have to worry about this? And if it's not right, the pro standards person will probably take and deal with it, and then you'll be out of it. Uh, but you don't want to get caught up in that stuff. And to be clear, you can call pro standards on day one of a trip if you get to the hotel and you're like, "Man, I'm not sure about what happened today." Give them a call. Yeah. And say, "Hey, this thing happened. What do you guys think?" give me some guidance here. How should I start to think about handling this? And if it's way out of bounds, they're going to tell you, Hey, that was way out of bounds. And they'll, they'll help you think about it. Um, luckily I've only had to make that call one time and, uh, and they were really helpful. And so, um, there's tools out there available for sure. Once you're at, at that level. Yeah. And, and they'll usually handle whatever the issues are. And, 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 I know in the passenger world, you know, there's an awful lot of front-end, back-end issues sometimes that come up that they need to handle. But a student, you know, until we kind of give them an idea how they should handle this, you know, when you ask them a question on an exam or, you know, like an essay question about here's the scenario and what would you do, 90-some percent of them really do the wrong thing. You know, they'll confront the captain. They'll say, well, I would take control of the airplane. I would, you know, it's like, no, you, you cannot do those things. You know, 
They and think that's what you want to hear, but really in the real world, that's not what you're going to do. Yeah, and they don't know what to do. So so this, this is really interesting to me. I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a tool that I got from you. But there's a, there's a couple of ways I think about stuff like this. Sometimes it's easier not to try and figure out where the line is, but just to say, what side of the line are we on? Because there are certain behaviors and things that happen in the job where it's pretty clear you're on the wrong side of the line. The closer you get to the line, the harder it is to know what, what side you're on, right? And that's the scenario that you gave. So if there's something safety related in the moment, you got to get through the moment first, right? So if there's something that you're seeing, you know, you're seeing your captain do something that you know is a really bad idea, speak up and immediately and say, I'm not comfortable with that is kind of a, a key phrase. I think if you say, I'm not comfortable with that, even the most extreme captains will usually, or other, or crew members in general will usually relent. But there's a little tool that I remember you talking about that I use, and it was a, it's the stop sign in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Can you share that with our listeners? This, this goes back to when you're learning to become an instrument pilot, you have a safety pilot on board. And the question is, well, what kind of a safety pilot do you want to have fly with you? There'll be those that say, well, my, my buddy, you know, my best friend or whatever. Um, but they really don't have any idea what kind of pilot you want. And, and my answer was always, well, I want somebody that knows the rules and, you know, flies the airplane the way I would fly it. But not only do they know the rules, but they will follow the rules. And, uh, the example would be the guy I want to fly with is the guy driving across the middle of Nevada at one o'clock in the morning comes to a intersection with a stop sign. There's nobody around, but they stop and then they go again. That's the kind of guy that I want to fly with because that is how I would fly the airplane. You just don't know. You, you, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, um, there might be a car coming that you didn't see, or there might be a motorcycle, or maybe whatever. Some hazard you don't know about right. that you can't comprehend because you don't have the, enough information to know what you don't know. Right, and, and so when you follow the rules, that keeps you safe. And some people know, you know, it's okay to disregard the rule this time because I think we'll be okay, and the next thing you know, it's not okay. So... You know, when it comes to flying with, with crew members or other people, I always enjoyed the fly a lot more when the guy flew like I flew. And, and they had the same kind of attitude towards it that I did. All right, so I want to go back. So we talked about where the program has been and, and where it's going. And one of the pieces I wanted to hit on was the use of veterans' benefits. With the job market the way it is today, we need more pilots than ever out there. And and you made mention of this, but not too many years ago, uh, if you could imagine yourself doing something else, the culture in the profession was, well, you better go do that. Because if you can imagine yourself doing something else, you're not going to have the stick to get through those first few years, which or the first five or ten years for some people, which were really brutal. Now we're seeing a shift where... You know, if you have another career and you're interested in flying or, um, you know, like let's say you're an engineer and you're making a good living, but you've always wanted to fly, 
it might be worth the financial investment to give it a go now because the job market is so good. And one of the groups that I think could, could fill that void is veterans. And we have a lot of military pilots who obviously already have their flying requirements met. But even if you're a current military pilot, you probably have a boom operator or a mechanic or an admin person or somebody in your unit who might want to learn to fly on the civilian side. And for all pilots, uh, people will find you and ask you about learning how to fly. So that's a very long setup for this question. It would be a it would be a great thing if we could take as many veterans who want to learn to fly and get them into school, get them a degree, get them their flying experience, and do it at a bare minimum of cost because they have built-in funding and they have life experience. They have some of those pieces that we're looking for in this industry. But there are some challenges in getting the VA to um, pay for flight training. And could you talk a little bit about what you guys have been through here in terms of that? We, we got our flight program here, the aviation program, our professional flight program, uh, VA approved. Uh, this is quite a number of years ago. Uh, and we were just moving right along. You know, we, we met all the requirements and, uh, as they were written at the time. And uh, we had a number of veterans in the program probably at the time, it was just still a small program, but we probably had, you know, 12 or 15 at the time. Uh, probably our better students. I mean, like I said, they were more mature. They, they figured out a lot of things in life and, and, and what they want to do. And then we ran into a really nasty uh, speed bump. And, and in, a, in a nutshell, some flight training programs in part of the country uh, was really bilking the the VA for a lot of extra money uh, and extra flying time and and some doing some really unethical questionable things and practices that the VA discovered and uh, they went in and tightened all the rules at that time when they tightened the rules it, it negatively impacted us uh, the, w- the way the rule's written right now is if you go to a university and the university owns its own flight training, in other words, they own the airplanes, they pay the flight instructors, uh, everything is done at the university, through the university, the VA will pay for the flight training and for the tuition. If you go to a university that has contract trainers, uh, which tend to be a little more, uh, I guess if you look, look at the, the long run, they're more flexible. They probably do a little bit better job. Uh, they can react quicker to things. Uh, if, but if you go to a contract school like that, then the VA says you, they will not fund the program unless the university does the private pilot training the first the first pilot rating they have to do that training uh, for them to support the program well most aviation programs university level if they have a contract trainer they cannot afford to to do that first training they just it's too complicated 
Uh, you basically have to have a flight school at the university to just do that one rating right. and then send them off to the track training. And if you already have the flight school at the university, you would just do all of it. Right. And and so the way it worked with us is, you know, and, and a lot of this was uh, the interpretation of your state approving authority. And, and ours at the time uh, just changed his mind how he was going to approve that piece of it, how he was going to interpret that piece of the of the law. And we had it arranged, we had it set up so that the VA students would be in a separate section. They would have, you know, the appropriate number of non-VA mixed in with the VA, and we would make certain flight instructors with our contract trainer, and we do use a contract trainer, which is really good for us. But certain instructors would be made adjunct professors or teachers, and we were going to train those VA kids with the university assets. Uh, they came back and said, no, you have to train every private pilot that way. You can't just, you know, have a separate section. Well, for us, that was a bridge too far. We could not make that many adjuncts. They all had to have degrees. They all had to submit their their transcripts to the VA. I mean, it was a ridiculous re- request, and, and uh, we had to finally drop the VA. Uh, so basically they were saying the VA students can't be treated differently than the normal right, students. Right, yeah. even though we had to set up in a different section that they would be, yeah. or, or it, was, it was a combination. Logistically makes makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, and so we had to, to give up the VA for us. But the schools that do own their own flight training, um, this is a super, super opportunity. And... I would definitely, if you were interested in using the VA benefits for this, I would look for one of those universities that has the VA benefits and does their, their own flight training. Um, I don't know exactly how many universities out there have contract trainers, but I think the number is growing just because it's expensive to own airplanes, it's expensive to maintain airplanes, and you know, a turnover of instructors constantly, the, the, how they're paid, how they're maintained. It's a real headache for universities now to, to have that, whereas a contractor, uh, they have the flexibility, they have the resources, and they can they yeah. can be much more responsive to the needs that your program has. And they have the expertise. Right. The f- people who own flight schools know how to run flight schools, and people who run universities know how to run universities. And this is kind of what you had mentioned when you first got here, where the university didn't understand why you needed a university program to train pilots. And we know that it can be done without it, but there's a lot of benefits to doing it this way. And we know that there are benefits to institutions, right? Legitimacy, credibility is one of those. So it's a positive to have university programs teaching people how to fly. At the same time, one of the costs of that is cost and flexibility and right now we need to train nationally a tremendous number of pilots and if we're going to wait for universities to start up their own flight training programs with nobody on board that has the expertise we're just not going to be able to get it done so the contract route is actually a really good way would be a really good way to get that done. it yeah it, it would just you know to change the va rule the the law uh it would just require a rewrite of maybe one or two sentences. Uh, and then it would require the VA to do, do, to do their job of oversight 
on those schools that that tend to push the rules and and are trying to uh, you know take advantage of that system. Um, we were doing everything the right way, and they, I mean, the the state employment authority absolutely would not see it any other way. So so we were, you know, we lost out. But other really really good schools that have contract training, you know, are not eligible for VA students. Um, it's just really difficult to have the university own that piece of the training when you have a contract trainer and. It wouldn't be that hard to change the rule, but that's yet to be seen. But if you are, you know, a veteran and you want to use your VA benefits to learn to fly, there are plenty of schools out there, good schools, that that do offer the VA, and it is the way to go. That's a good point to make. The schools that are doing it are great places to go. Uh, UND and Embry-Riddle are probably the two that are top of mind for me that could you know, and yeah. there, I'm sure that there's more, but those are the two I'm thinking of. The problem is, is they can't train everybody just because of logistics, right? I mean, you can only get so many right. airplanes in and out of a airport in an hour. So we're going to need a lot more schools nationwide in order to train everybody that right. needs to be and trained. It, it, it's, you know, when you're looking at the VA, the VA benefits, it's not just, you know, they need a lot of mechanics. They need a lot of, of uh, air traffic controllers. They need a lot of other people, too, besides pilots. So... You know, those VA benefits work at a lot of different aviation programs that are, you know, completely with, within the university itself. Well, this might be a good example of a instance where, uh, you know, we get the VA that we deserve. And so maybe as veterans, maybe we have to inform our policymakers on this, this, this little problem because it's in the news right now. Every day there's a a new story it, about pilot shortage. It would, it would, I mean, it, it would open up a, a number of schools that are, you know, like I'll use Arizona State, for example. Arizona State has contract training, but good school, big school, but they can't, they can't take any VA kids. Because they're using ATP. Because they're using, yeah. And, and, and now that, I don't know that for a fact. They may have had, they may have some provision there that they work around with that, but, you know, that would be an example of somebody that couldn't, VA students. So you have, at least if if they were subjected to the same rules that you guys are subjected right. to. I just wanted to cover that for um, for our listeners because there's a lot of, we have a lot of veterans and at, at a minimum, we have a lot of military folks who are going to interact with veterans and, and it's good to go, go into this whole process knowing um, what the problems are before you get to a school and you move your family or something silly. Yeah, and you you find out oh I can't actually use my benefits here. That's yeah. That was the one thing I was going to mention is you know when you do leave the military, you may not be able to live with your family lives to finish your 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 education for that reason. So pick someplace close, pick pick a well respected school, and after that you know as an airline pilot you can pretty much live wherever you want to. You just have to commute if you have to. So. Well, I think that is a great place to begin to wrap up. We're going to move into a section now that we call our memory items. So it's just a few short questions. The answers don't need to be short. Memory item number one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received or an especially impactful piece of advice that you've received? I I guess it would be, you know, just don't quit. Uh, Yeah, it may seem hard. Yeah, it may seem overwhelming. But, you know, every time I felt like that and I stuck with it 
and I worked at it. In the end, I, I, I look back on it and I go, I can't believe I thought that was so hard. And I guess that would be the best thing is, is just never, never quit, never give up because people can do more than they ever think they could. Do you have any required reading? It could be flying. It could be, you've talked a lot about human factors. You have a um, degree in behavioral science. So it could be really anything you choose, but any required reading for upcoming, up and coming aviation professionals. Oh man, I mean, I'm gonna say there's two books that I, I really found helpful and both of them are, writ, are, are from, a, from a guy named Kern. Uh, one's called Redefining Airmanship and the word airmanship is not, you know, when I went through pilot training and, and was an instructor, I mean, we always talked about airmanship. Uh, how's, how's his airmanship? What, what's his airmanship like? Those kind of things. How am I developing my airmanship? Today, that word is never used in pilot training. You never hear it here. You never hear it. I'm, I'm trying to reinstitute it, but it's a slow process, I guess. And the other one that he wrote was, is a book called Going Pro, meaning professional. And it talks about the different levels of professionalism. And what it boils down to is just because you're getting paid to do the job doesn't mean you're professional. And those two books, uh, I make required reading for our capstone class and they really help students focus now on this transition from being just a goofy student to actually being a professional and you know when you step in that airplane with full of people it's a big responsibility that they're taking on and it helps them make that transition better last memory item do you have a personal philosophy, a mantra, rule of thumb, guiding principle, anything short and sweet that you have used in your career that you've found especially helpful? The one thing at the airline world, in any world, but at the airline in particular, guaranteed you will be fired if you lie to the company. And I have found that it is better to admit your mistakes and especially safety issues, you know, um, people learn from your mistakes. I, I, I found it very, I don't mind talking about the things that I've screwed up in, in my flying world. Uh, things I've done, you know, that I go, man, I'm glad that turned out good. <laughs> you know, because it could have sure went the other way. And when you look at airlines today, you know, and I got a couple friends that are in the safety areas of, of airlines. They'll tell you, when you look at how many close calls happen that are never reported, never, you know, on anybody's radar, but he said, when you look at how many close calls there are across the board in all the airlines, it is phenomenal how many there are. Things that could have gone wrong just by, by pure luck, grace of God, however you want to look at it, it went okay. One of the best things we ever did in this industry was the open share, non-punitive open sharing of information yeah. through the ASAP programs and the, and the like. Yeah. I use examples of my screw-ups all the time in class. I mean, I want people to see that it's okay to say it. It's okay to, to, to admit it. It's okay. You know, you don't need to, you know, everybody's worried about, oh, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to look like, no, you know, you're human. Everybody makes these mistakes and, admitting to it and helping other people learn from your mistakes makes you 
look way better than saying, gosh, that guy never makes a mistake. Well, they do. And you just don't know about them. I think that is a perfect place for us to just tie the bow and start to wrap up here. I just want to give a quick plug to the university website. If you want to check out the program, and I encourage you to do so, go to www.mnsu.edu. Just search for aviation, and that first result that comes up will be the aviation department. And if nothing else, go ahead and take a look at that uh, cover photo on that page because the equipment that they're using out at North Star is, it was beautiful. It's always been beautiful. When I was here, the equipment was super well-maintained, very clean, really great equipment, and they got some good pictures out on the website. They also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash msuaviation. And if you search that, uh, the profile picture will be the North Star Aviation logo, who's the contract training provider here at MSU. So if you or anybody you know is looking to learn how to fly, I definitely encourage you guys to check this place out. They're rocking and rolling out here. It was a great program before, and they're doing even even better things now. Tom, any closing thoughts or anything you want to share with our listeners? No, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the time we had, and we could talk about these things. Uh, it's a changing world, and and society rules and and the norms and what's accepted and what's not accepted and you know in the airline world in the professional world really the FAA hasn't changed their standards and I really don't think in the professional and ethical way we should change our standards either Uh, and I think we have to police ourselves in that regard and we have to make sure that those people that come after us and those people that we work with, uh, you know, maybe they aren't there yet, but we need to help them get there. It, it's, it's, you know, we can't ever let this degrade. It, it is a matter of safety and, and uh, pride that we have to maintain that. We are the stewards of our own profession. We are. I want to share one last very quick story, and then we are going to wrap it up. When I was instructing here... The earliest lessons of the day were always at 7 a.m. And, you know, it was pretty common that I wouldn't have a lesson until, say, 9 o'clock or something. But it was pretty common that I would just come out at 7 a.m. anyway, and I'd make myself busy doing a little paperwork, getting caught up. However, I also came in at 7 o'clock because I knew that come 7.15 or 7.30, there's a good chance Tom here would be walking around with a cup of Folgers coffee, and he might sit down and we'd have a chat. And a lot of those chats really got me in the right mindset thinking about the next steps of my career so just wanted to give a little gratitude to tom for that thanks tom for your time then and thanks for your time today i really appreciate you being here yeah my pleasure and to everybody listening thanks for joining us today keep the shiny side up and remember always sound cool on the radio (laughs) see you next time